coming up on episode four of the ELB podcast. Listen to a September 2015 panel on Bruce Kane's new book, Democracy More or Less, recorded at the American Political Science Association's annual meeting in San Francisco. Have efforts to reform the American political system backfired? Do changes in rules for campaign financing, redistricting, and election administration have unintended and undesirable consequences? Listen for a special episode of the ELB podcast. Welcome to episode four of the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan of the University of California at Irvine and the Election Law Blog. In September 2015, at the American Political Science Association's annual meeting in San Francisco, there was a panel convened to discuss Bruce Kane's terrific new book, Democracy More or Less. We hear excerpts from that conversation. We begin with Thad Kauser introducing the panel, Thad from the University of California at San Diego, followed by remarks by me, by Francis Lee of the University of Maryland College Park, by Ray LaRaja of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and by Rick Pildes of New York University. This is followed by a response from Bruce Kane. We begin with introductory remarks by Thad Kauser of the University of California at San Diego. Good morning. Uh, for a panel that has two purposes, the first is to dive deeply into an uh, exploration and debate of the issues that have occupied much of Bruce Kane's professional life and much of many of ours, which is looking at political reform, not just from the piece-by-piece -piece empirical analysis of the effects of one reform, which is an important task that we usually do at these APSA meetings, but looking coherently at the democratic impulses that are behind a set of reforms and whether those impulses are often misguided and need to be replaced by another set of impulses in, in the main argument of the book. Our second aim here um, is to assure, to honor and celebrate, celebrate Bruce by not giving him a free ride. So we all know that the author meets critics is the uh, most misleading title of panels at APSA. It is normally author meets graduate students or author meets sycophants, but I assure you I assure you that it's, we have not fulfilled that purpose. Uh, we have an all-star cast of independent thinkers, so in the program order, we are going to start with uh, Rick Hassan, who is, as many of you know, the, uh, one of the, the leading election law scholars. Actually, the leading populist is what he is. <laughs> <laughs> You're starting yeah, early, huh? <laughs> so, you know, in case he wasn't going to be aggressive, I thought I would start. <laughs> Francis Lee of the University of Maryland uh, will go next. Who's, of course, one of the leading congressional scholars. Ray LaRage on elections and campaign finance. One of the leading anti-populists uh, of that movement ever. Eldis <laughs> of NYU's law school who uh, will has assures me has set the record for disagreements with Bruce in public. <laughs> We're going to attempt to break that record today. So, Rick, please start us off. Thanks very much. And uh, just two words uh, in advance. First, it's a roundtable, not a paper panel. So my initial instinct was to slack because there's no paper. But I ended up writing a book review of this book that will appear in something called The New Rambler. So I actually have some semi-coherent thoughts. So if I go too long, let me know. <coughs> the other thing is, uh, I think this um, uh, panel should be uh, retitled "The Battle for the Soul," the the battle for Bruce Kane's soul. Yeah, well, that uh, was lost years ago. <laughs> but between Pildes and me, so uh, I think we're going to use you as kind of a pinata. I, I, I don't know what they got. Right. Uh, so modern American democracy is often messy, increasingly polarized, sometimes stupefying, and surprisingly decentralized. Our Congress functions or doesn't mainly along party lines under rules set in a constitution more than 200 years old, which doesn't recognize political parties and indeed was designed to stifle their emergence. Divided government in times of polarized parties has undermined accountability as each side can blame the other for policy failures and as we lurch from one government shutdown to another, thanks in part to polarization and in part to internal fighting within the Republican Party, much power devolves to the state and local level where we see one party rule rather than partisan stalemate. Uh, that state one party is in 
extends even to the rules for conducting elections, where a majority of states use partisan election officials to set the rules of the game and carry out, their own, uh, carry out the elections, and where state legislatures draw their own legislative districts only mildly constrained by the Supreme Court's requirements. Our campaign finance system is careening towards deregulation with a series of Supreme Court decisions and partially enforced congressional matters leading to the creation of political organizations, some of which can shield their donors' identities, along with the wealthiest Americans, uh, translating their economic power into political power. Money spent to influence elections is complemented by money spent to influence public policy through lobbying, creating a system in which those with great wealth and organizational ability have a much better chance of having their preferences enacted into law and having their preferred candidates elected than average Americans. It's no wonder that the reform impulse in American politics is strong. States with the initiative process have experimented with top two primaries, redistricting reform. We have the national popular vote movement to make an end run around the Electoral College. Uh, and uh, reformers have even pushed for a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United and other cases which hamstring the ability uh, to control money in politics. Good government groups regularly clamor for redistricting reform, often joined by the political party on the losing side of redistricting in each state. Uh, expansion of voting rights for former felons, and the end of corruption and patronage. Some even call for constitutional conventions with citizen participants chosen by lottery. But as Bruce Kane argues in his terrific new book, uh, the never-ending effort at reform presents trade-offs and attempts to achieve either pure, majoritarian, uh, pure majoritarianism or government meritocracy can have unintended and untoward consequences. Many reform efforts are oversold as a cure for all that ails American democracy. Kane argues for a Goldilocks pluralist agenda, which recognizes that busy citizens lack interest in governing and capacity to make complex decisions. Instead, <coughs> politics is conducted through intermediaries across a, a range of local, state, and national governing arenas. Pluralism, quote, prioritizes aggregation, consensus, and fluid coalitions as a means of good democratic government. Kane presents his pluralism as a midway point between an unrestrained impulse towards populism, which fails to recognize average citizen capacity and interest, and apolitical meritocracy, which fails to recognize that responsive politics requires play in the joints. Ultimately, however, Kane embraces an egalitarian pluralism, which he calls a blended neopluralism that accepts much of the egalitarian and uh, populist reform agenda, which he sets up as one of his foils. Kane does a masterful job explaining modern American democracy and much of the folly of, folly of reform. He's the bridge between political scientists on the one hand and lawyers, policymakers, and think tanks on the other. He's able to call the key points in an increasingly formalized and jargon-laden political science and election law literature uh, to present relevant data to a reader with no formal training. Much of the book focuses on misguided reforms begun with intentions but ending in folly. Kane discusses how open meeting laws, popular on the local level, can present, prevent the space and privacy needed for negotiating delicate compromises. I'm going to skip some of this. I talk about what he says about Jerry Brown not being able to do his own development plan because of a silly conflict of interest law. And Kane also gives a nice historical context for uh, the reform effort. On rare occasions, Kane goes too far in critiquing the reform efforts. He describes discussions surrounding the passage of the 2002 uh, McCain-Feingold law, pointing out that he and the late great Nelson Polsby warned reformers that putting limits on party contributions would empower independent individuals and donors. Kane's point seems to be that the era of super PACs was inevitable once Congress put McCain-Feingold in place. Yet at the time the law passed, contributions to independent groups were capped at 5,000, and it took a Supreme Court reversal of precedent in the Citizens United case and action in the lower federal courts and the FEC to blow those li limits off and to lead to the emergence of super PACs. None of this was inevitable when Congress passed McCain-Feingold. At that time, there was a majority of the Supreme Court that was willing to uphold just about any campaign finance law put before it. Everything changed with the re replacement of O'Connor with Alito. Further, Kane's criticism goes too far because it fails to recognize the significant barriers faced by reformers in the United States. They must propose reforms consistent uh, not only with political realities, but with the Supreme Court's view of the Constitution. So thanks to the 1976 Buckley versus Vallejo decision, uh, every reform measure has been a half measure at best. The real question is whether partial reform is better than none, and on that point, reasonable people can disagree. Despite these occasional missteps, Kane's critique of the reform effort is much more tempered than that of Jonathan Rauch, who longs for the return of the smokeful groom, or Rick Pildes, who laments <laughs> what he terms the democratic romanticism, hyperlinked in my review, uh, of many in the reform camp. Uh, as Tom Mann and E.J. Dion persuasively argue, the good old days in which the new political realists pined for were not so good, whether measured in terms of political equality or government efficiency, it took way too much grease to grease the wheels in the old days. All right, the kinder, gentler pluralism. Uh, when it comes to the agenda for reform, Kane is an egalitarian pluralism, 
is an egalitarian pluralist, ending up much closer to the populist position than he himself recognizes. <laughs> Payne favors electoral college reform. Could calling... there be a deeper injury? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not a sycophantic panel. Yeah. I just, I just... <laughs> Payne favors electoral college reform, calling the college, quote, a ticking time bomb that allows the minority of voters to control the most powerful position in America, a violation of the basic principle of majority rule. While he does not endorse nonpartisanship for citizen commission or citizen commissions for redistricting, an issue which he is content to leave to the pulling, hauling, and trading in the political process, he's an emphatic believer in nonpartisan election administration. The government may be an arena in which parties and interest groups compete for power, but those counting the votes and running elections should have their allegiance to the integrity of the process, not to a political party, and the goal should be to make the franchise easy and convenient. He also believes the court should become more active using Bush versus Gore type equal protection principles to force greater uniformity and nonpartisanship in the conduct of elections. On the crucial issue of money in politics, he believes that the wealthy and the well organized have distinctive systemic advantages in politics and policymaking, thanks to both campaign finance spending and investment <coughs> and lobbying. He writes, quote, even if we solve the quote corruption problem inherent in the revolving door exchanges between private and public sectors. The U.S. system allows the wealthy ample advantages for access and influence through its campaign finance laws and lobbying channels. If these activities matter, they can cause democratic distortion, love that, in either the populist or pluralist sense, biasing results towards the few and obstructing policies for the many. The, uh, this inequality is magnified by lack of citizen capacity. Quote, the Achilles heel for democracy is not the decisions that attract public attention, but the accumulation of many smaller decisions that are either not as salient or where the combined effort effects of public decisions over time cannot be foreseen at the time the public weighs in. Cain accepts so much of the reform agenda that one wonders at the end of his book whether his vision of politics would differ in significant ways from those of the reformers he criticizes. It seems clear that he would leave much redistricting reform in the hands of politicians, and he would allow for at least some uses of political patronage to keep the party strong. He wants fewer and less frequent elections. He would cut back on disclosure of campaign finance information advocating what he terms semi-disclosure, which would be generic information about the background or industry of contributors rather than their actual identities. He favors semi-disclosure because he, be he believes full disclosure deters and is intended by reformers to deter certain election-related spending by certain actors. Parties would have more flexibility in the nomination process, and regional, regional governments would have the ability to deviate from the one-person, one-vote principle to achieve federalist-like regional compromise uh, on governance. In the end, though, Keynes' endorsement of campaign finance vouchers is a sure giveaway for his egalitarian impulses. I have long been a proponent of such vouchers. I'm not alone. They've been favored by Bruce Ackerman and Ian Ayers, and more recently by Larry Lessig, all of us advocating vouchers on grounds of equality, or at least preventing the wealthiest Americans from having too much influence over the political process. They fund various types of intermediaries, including political parties, based upon their popularity and voters' intensity of preference. Kane would consider going further and offer vouchers for citizen-oriented lobbying to overcome the collective act active problems associated with representing diffuse interests. Quote, a voucher system could theoretically encourage better ties between voters and lobbyists because there would be a competition for voucher dollars. This could lessen the gulf between the electoral mandate and the lobbying industry. Rick Pildes, in his recent uh, Yale Law Journal article on what he terms, quote, democratic romanticism, goes after vouchers as a kind of Pollyannish solution to the country's problems, and one which will only exacerbate uh, polarization by funding more extreme uh, politics. What Kane recognizes, and Pildes does not, however, is that vouchers can work to moderate politics by causing the funding of a variety of interests in political, uh, 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 variety of interests, including those interests at the center of the polity, which can compete with one another. As Tom Mann and Tony Corrado argue, the current donor class is plenty polarized, and there is no good reason to think that it would get more polarized if we gave incentives to all voters, including, including those less motivated <coughs> on the political fringes, to make decisions about funding U.S. politics. But they would certainly be a lot more egalitarian. Kane offers what we might call democracy for grown-ups. It's easy to emphasize the grown-up part of that equation, the rejection of simplistic and sometimes counterproductive reform measures, which sometimes gain traction. However, there's a democracy component, too. And when we look at Kane's vision of how to improve American democracy, it's a vision of a more egalitarian United States, which should make thoughtful populists rally around him and his fine book. We now hear from Francis Lee of the University of Maryland. I appreciate very much the chance to participate in the discussion of Bruce Kane's important new book. Uh, thanks very much to Thad for getting this, um, this roundtable organized. At the outset, I want to say that what I most appreciate about this book is its wisdom. That virtue is not the first quality that usually comes to mind in reading the political reform literature. 
The whole genre tends towards overclaiming and oversimplification. This book grapples with the difficult trade-offs involved in any reform efforts, the irreducible fact of competing goods. Bruce's goal is to tread a path between too much democracy and too little democracy. That's why the title of the book is Democracy More or Less. He differentiates his approach, which he terms neo-pluralism, from both the populist tradition and the apolitical tradition. Populists favoring more democracy have championed reforms such as the initiative, referendum, more elections, term limits. <clears throat> Apolitical reforms drawing back from democracy include nonpartisan elections, reliance upon the courts, and the creation of neutral expert agencies like the Federal Reserve, the SEC, the FCC, etc. As someone who studies American institutions and spends much of my time writing about uh, the U.S. Congress, it's probably not surprising that I'm highly sympathetic with a neo-pluralist outlook. Sort of comes for the territory, I think. Um, Bruce's emphasis on the importance and unavoidability of mediating institutions <coughs> strikes me as the right place to begin in thinking about American democracy. But rather than comment on the merits of Bruce's many reform proposals covered in the book, I'd like just to focus a bit on the overall politics of political reform. It seems to me that the biggest hurdle a neo-pluralist reform agenda faces is probably public skepticism. The distinctive characteristics of Bruce's reform agenda are, one, it demands more realism about the broad public's capabilities, and two, it emphasizes how mediating institutions will always be central to how democracy operates in practice. My worry is that there's just so little receptivity to this message. Public trust in government as well as in just about any mediating institution one can find data on, is extremely low. After 2010, trust in government overall has been plumbing record depths in the history of public polling. The same is true of approval of Congress as an institution, which according to the most recent Gallup poll stands at 14% and hasn't exceeded 30% since 2007. Public attitudes towards both major political parties are also very poor by historical standards. Uh, according to Pew Research Center polls, a majority of the American public hasn't had a favorable attitude towards the Republican Party since 2005. The Republican Party currently stands at 35% approval. Attitudes towards the Democratic <coughs> Party are only slightly better at 42%. This is a far cry from the 60% approval the party used to routinely get as recently as the 1990s. Americans' confidence in the news media also stands at or tied with record lows in Gallup polling. Huge shares of, um, uh, of Americans believe that interest groups already have too much influence. The bottom line is that any reformer arguing for the importance of mediating institutions in such an environment is going to run into tremendous headwinds of public mistrust. It's probably not surprising that pluralism as a school of thought had its heyday in the 1950s and 1960s when trust in all of these institutions was so much higher than it is today. A second key point on the politics of political reform, there are very few voters or groups who really care about these reform issues in and of themselves. They tend to view them in crudely instrumental terms. Democratic principles cut only limited amounts of ice outside of law schools, political science departments, and reform advocacy organizations. It often seems that the institutional reform arena is one of endless opportunism. <coughs> On the question of congressional procedure, it just seems like the two parties just exchange their talking points whenever the majority changes hands. It's probably safe to say that major political reforms are generally not adopted on the basis of the strength of the intellectual arguments in favor of them. Such arguments help, but they are almost never decisive. Political reforms are usually adopted because they become common carriers for a diverse group of actors who are all persuaded for a variety of reasons that the reforms will help them achieve their political goals. For example, Congress's reform era of the 1970s, a period that strengthened central party leaders, weakened committee chairs, and opened up Congress to much greater transparency, only happened because an array of different interests and individuals coalesced around these institutional reforms as a way to advance their own widely varying goals. 
the Reform Coalition first got underway because of a frustration with a lack of progress on civil rights, including uh, legislators such as Hubert Humphrey, Eugene McCarthy, Richard Bowling, as well as Labor, the NAACP, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, and the Americans for Democratic Action. That was one element of the Reform Coalition. Liberals were the first on the bandwagon. Their target was primarily the Southern committee chairs, who seemingly had a lock on the process, and they believed that these reforms would help advance their public policy aims. Over time, these reformers were joined by another group, a newer group, including public interest groups such as Common Cause and legislators such as Gary Hart and Tim Wirth, who sought congressional reform less to advance traditional liberal goals than to reduce corruption and to improve congressional performance and accountability, as well as their own personal reputations for supporting such causes. These congressional reforms would almost certainly never have happened simply on the basis of the strength of those who cared about performance values or abstract principles of democracy. Critical and decisive energy coalesced behind these reforms because they were seen as vital for achieving immediate, tangible political goals, as well as making sense in terms of democratic values. The important point is that marshalling sufficient energy and interest for political reform usually requires the support of those who care about the reform for practical reasons, rather than for abstract principles. That energy seems strikingly absent in the contemporary Congress. For an institution in which morale is as low as it, as it is, on both sides of the aisle, it's notable how little reform ferment is actually occurring. There's nothing like the engagement with institutional reform that was evident <coughs> in the 1970s or even in the mid-1990s. Finally, as we consider the various proposals in Bruce's reform agenda, or any reformers for that matter, <coughs> I'd say that the key questions are always, who will see these reforms as being in their interests? And who will see these reforms as adverse to their interests? And as we contemplate the answers to these questions, we immediately run up against the problem of party polarization. With two such evenly matched political parties at the national level, reform proposals will be scrutinized intensely for any whiff of partisan advantage for one side or the other. One of the likely reasons why the congressional reforms of the 70s ever happened is that Democrats weren't afraid of losing their majorities and didn't see Republicans as a threat. Transparency, openness, more recorded votes, all that didn't look threatening to a party that had held power for decades on end. Meanwhile, Republicans at the time liked those reform proposals because they could see how they would be helpful to their own interests. A minority party seeking to get its message out always perceives benefits from transparency, more recorded votes, and the like. So Republicans helped give the 1970s congressional reformers important bipartisan political support. That type of cross-party support is particularly hard to come by in the current environment. If either side perceives any proposed reforms as disadvantageous to its interests, it has sufficient power to block it, and it will almost certainly opt to do so. It's very difficult to get past this stalemate. The current environment is pretty unfavorable for political reform for many of the same reasons why it's difficult to make progress on any issues right now. If anything, the hurdles are higher in this area because institutional reforms almost always cut very close to partisan interests. We now hear from Ray LaRaja of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. So, um, do, you, do you people mind if I do it here so I can look at my notes? That's fine. Well, full disclosure, um, I was a, grad, a graduate student of, of Bruce's, but if he thinks that's going to let him off the hook. I um, do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although, I'm thinking of all those times you sent me up to Sacramento to collect data, <laughs> this is payback. No. Um, yeah, well, there was another student that I sent to a demonstration, and she got arrested. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do that so you did better. <laughs> I invited her, but she wouldn't get out. Well, just, you she know. couldn't get out. <laughs> <laughs> so for some context, you know, I, I did seep some of these things up. Um, Bruce was the head of the Institute of Governmental Studies, often jokingly referred to as the Institute of Bad Government. Um, so a lot of this discussion did go on. It was a robust discussion. It really was. And... Um, we, uh, and reform groups came in all the time. We had great conversations. And I just want to say that was, one of, that was an incredible educational experience for me to, uh, to, to, to be there and, and, and get in, 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 involved in some of this. So let me, let me turn to um, 
Bruce's uh, book. This is a, a pluralist manifesto um, with all the Bruceisms that I've heard in various contexts over the years, um, and it shows also, it, well, it, it covers an incredibly ra range of topics um, in a relatively short space. Uh, it does a great job of connecting institutional design to particular democratic values, which we don't always do. Um, that in itself, I think, should add significantly to, to reform debates. Um, I particularly like your discussion of fairness, um, formal institutions such as redistricting, and then the informal structures of wealth, uh, concentrated interests. But Bruce, is, uh, he's also sympathetic to reform goals, and this is uh, one of the things I admired as, as a graduate student. He wasn't just you know, giving lectures. He was, he was really a good listener, <coughs> even as he tells them they're wrong. Um, but, uh, but I actually think um, he's too nice to reformers, and, and the populist reformers. I think he concedes too much, uh, and so, some other people have said that. Um, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a good construction. <laughs> Does the recording show the pointing to you? Um, one reason is that his argument for institutions relies too much on the notion, I understand the cognitive limits, but it re relies almost too much on this notion of cognitive limits and the attending delegation paradox. Um, by the way, that delegation paradox is a great insight, and I think that term is going to become standard usage. So I think the argument for pluralist institutions runs deeper. I think Bruce downplays the importance of, uh, of passions and emotions in politics. It's, it's a major premise for, for pluralism, you know, as we all know from our reading of Madison. And in feeling, failing to note this, he, he buys into the idealist view that, that voters can actually be made more rational. And that's not to say I, I am among the political scientists who believe voters know what their interests are. And, um, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm more likely to trust them on these things. But, um, but he buys into this notion that they can be made more rational, if not fully knowledgeable, by education. But that's not necessarily so. Cognitive limits is only part of the story. And the other part is what people like Aristotle and, and Machiavelli, and passions rule, okay? And particularly when connected to self-interest, and that's why we need institutions to filter them. It's not just the cognitive failure, which is obviously a big part. We have these aggressive impulses. And I think by not pointing this out, he kind of buys into the American exceptionalism bit um, that he actually criticizes. Um, I should point out that um, Bruce does consider irrational aspects implicitly in some of his discussion. Um, for instance, his discussion about transparency in politics, he actually says, you want people to talk sometimes behind closed doors because you need intermediators to deal with the anger that people have and to, you know, so they get down to business to negotiate and, and govern. And he also acknowledges some campaigns. Um, but you seem to talk about it as a distortion that needs to be overcome, and we know that that is not going to happen, at least in the American context. Um, the Trump candidacy, I think, offers a very good example for Bruce's arguments. Um, here's the difference between the idealist and the pluralist on how to deal with Trump. So you take Bruce's analysis. He would say, well, the idealist reformers would see him as an aberration. Um, he's vain, he's ignorant, he's using his celebrity and wealth to gain power. We need to educate people about him presumably through the op-ed page, the New York Times editorial pages, <laughs> or pass reforms uh, to make it harder for wealthy uh, to run for office. And the irony, of course, is many of these populist reforms give rise to people like Trump. Um, so the pluralists, like Bruce C. Trump, would say, look, this is, he, this, look at history. This is no aberration. Um, someone like him is always plausible. He's tapping into a vein of emotional resentment. He's using his celebrity status to hold the stage. So let's be grateful that we actually have institutions like multiple primaries, aggressive media, um, a party structures that will make it unlikely, not implausible, but unlikely he's going to win this nomination. And, um, and this is what we mean by institutions dealing with some of the cognitive limits of voters who are, are emotional, I might add, and who might not recognize the liabilities of a Trump presidency for their future. Um, I also can't help but point out that Larry Lessig, as, as many of you know, is the classic idealist reformer. He's the perfect foil for Bruce in this. He's saying, basically, in his presidential aspirations, give me the, um, as the powers, the philosopher king, to cleanse the body politic, and then I will leave the stage when things are fixed. Uh, and he has no conception, at least in public, about the role of, of presidential power and institutions 
Um, and it's a world without this kind of pluralist contestation that Bruce really talks about. Okay, so now let me criticize Bruce's book as if I was a good government reformer in the populist mold. So if I'm a populist reformer, I'm going to say, listen, you know, I actually think your reform agenda, and actually, you know, Francis gets to this, is less realistic than mine. Uh, you acknowledge the dominance of money, the problems of ongoing collective action for dispersed groups. At least I have a hammer, the direct initiative that from time to time can challenge the democratic distortions created by a narrow band of interests that ally with either party. Okay? So, I'll, you know, if we go with your reforms, vouchers, let's take one example, who's to say that the same groups with their organizational muscle aren't going to dominate the system as well? And if voters have cognitive limits, right, how are you going to sell terms like creating more structural coherence to them? Um, so my critique is, what is the path forward on pluralist reforms if they can be, A, captured by existing dominant groups, and B, they can't be sold, again, as Francis alludes to, to, the, to an inattentive public. Um, so in other words, your own arguments about group capture makes the pluralist project very unlikely to succeed. Okay, so now let me, last part, let me play devil's advocate from the other side. Now I'm the ultra-pluralist, now I'm, now I'm Madison Square. Um, let me take it this way. Why the suggestion? I mean, I, I guess I'll, I'll focus on the contradiction. Why the suggestion for sweeping federal constitutional reform? So I understand your arguments very well about structural incoherence, but for a pluralist to contemplate you know, sweeping changes after so much sedimentation um, seems incongruous. I mean, we know pluralists believe in things like path dependency, the acceptance of trade-offs, Bounded rationality, unintended consequences. Maybe I'm misreading you here. Which sweeping federal reforms? Well, you're saying we should really change the Constitution and go back to some. So I could be misreading. No, no you're misreading. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's <laughs> stop. It. He really just wants to do no harm. Okay. No, no. Uh, there's a long argument about why the federal constitutional path is not. Is, no. Okay. But at the state level. That's a different. That's a state okay. Path. All right. So let's, let's talk about it in the discussion about the state level. Okay. Um, so anyway, I, my, you know, my feeling was by definition, I always thought you were an incrementalist. Maybe I, I was misreading yeah, your arguments. Okay. Um, here's, well, here's another apparent contradiction that needs an explanation. The Electoral College. It's not clear why you would be against the Electoral College, I, I, you know, considering the trade-offs. You, you seem to be undermining your own pluralist argument by seeking the popular vote. So I, I understand the majoritarian argument, uh, but... Um, but the, the pluralist argument is pretty strong as well. You're binding a diverse nation through federalist principles in the Electoral College, which seems pretty pluralist to me. And in 2000, my sense was voters were more pissed off about um, the screw-up with the ballots than they were about uh, Bush not having a majority. Um, so um, finally, um, what I would like to have seen in the book was additional ideas for new kinds of mediating institutions and how these might come about. I mean, what, Labor, for instance, labor unions are severely weakened. What would replace labor unions? All right, who's who? You know, to take on Jonathan Rauch, uh, you know, he wants to bring back the ward healer uh, or the party boss. And the, but what would you say? Well, we're not going to bring those people back, obviously. But what what's going to replace uh, those types of things? And um, I'll just finish by saying, you know, I really do think this book's going to have significant influence on the reform debates. It's, it's a very clear intellectual marker um, why we've gone too far with some of these populist reforms. And um, it provides a lot of fresh new uh, arguments for, for how to think about them differently. So I'll stop there. We'll now hear from Rick Pildes of New York University. So as many of you might know, if you've been on a panel where Bruce has commented on your work, as I have been several times, uh, Bruce tends to be a relentless, aggressive, machine gun-like critic. Boom, 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 identifying all of the flaws from his perspective in your work. Uh, and as Bruce knows, I've told him several times, I've relished the opportunity uh, for these positions to be reversed. I have to go to bathroom. <laughs> the problem is, Bruce is now so old 
It's kind of unseemly. <laughs> no, I'll take that. I'll take that. This is coming a roast. Now, to, now we've decided uh, to roast level. To attack him quite as aggressively as I might have in his younger days. I appreciate that. Um, and the other problem is he's, he's written the best book on democratic reform uh, that we've had uh, generated in many, many uh, years, in my view. Um, so the way I uh, look at the framing of the approach Bruce has taken in this book is that since the 1970s, we've experienced a slew of reforms, some of which Francis mentioned, to the democratic process that, taken as a whole, uh, is unmatched since the progressive era. Uh, although unlike the progressive era in which these reforms were concentrated in a relatively short amount of time, these reforms took place over a series of years since the 1970s. Um, and you're familiar with the forms many of these uh, reforms do take, popular, increased popular participation, greater transparency, disdain for certain forms of transactional kind of politics, such as the ending of earmarks in Congress. And yet at the same time, uh, it seems that the ability of our system to deliver effective governance has been diminishing considerably, not just at the national level. Uh, the famous example at the local government level is the inability to build a major new airport in the last 30 years or so because of all of the stakeholders uh, who are now part of that process, all of the veto points that have followed from the increased participatory and transparency sorts of requirements. And the question Bruce, Bruce's book asks, as I understand it, is whether there's any relationship between these two Developments And, of course, his answer, although I think it's somewhat elusively buried um, a bit in the book, is yes. Uh, and as the Brookings scholar Jonathan Rauch, whose name has come up here now several times, has noticed, uh, there are a number of different political scientists and legal scholars in recent years who have begun to reach similar conclusions about the relationship between these two developments, the populist reforms to the political process, uh, and the current dysfunctionality of American governance institutions. Um, and Rauch has dubbed these developments, which he now sees nicely in a synthetic way as pieces of a whole, as what he calls the new political realism. And some of the people on this panel, in addition to Bruce uh, Ray and his work, uh, my work on critiquing what I call democratic romanticism, uh, are people that Rauch sees as part of this moment. Uh, in political thinking about American democratic institutions. Um, Bruce's book is the most systematic, fully elaborated development of this new political realism. I think that's one way to understand it. And I think the book is much more radical intellectually than the way the book itself kind of presents itself, uh, and maybe more so than Bruce himself recognizes, although I don't know if that's true. Uh, but a key central idea in the book, which has been alluded to here already, um, is, that, is what Bruce calls the flaw, the central flaw in neo-populist logic, which is that it assumes too much of individual citizens. Um, and he means too much both in the dimension of citizen capacity, uh, as he says, and in citizen engagement with political issues. Um, and this realistic view about the limits of citizen capacity, of course, has a long pedigree in, American, in political thought, in democratic thought. Uh, but in modern decades, it's typically been voiced by conservatives um, and used often as an argument for why the state should be more limited, uh, because people aren't able to process information well enough to be able to monitor government that is complex and expansive. I think Bruce is the first modern liberal who has come out and voiced this position, this critique of citizen capacity and engagement um, so strongly and made it a systematic basis of critique of current American democratic uh, processes and of many reform uh, kinds of efforts. Um, and the second thing to be very clear about in what Bruce is doing in the book uh, and to put a harsher edge on it uh, than I think the book sometimes does, um, he's trying to insist on forcing us to recognize the perverse consequences uh, that neo-populist political reforms over the last 40 years 
um, have actually had. Um, so the example uh, of for perhaps, uh, well, I don't want to start getting too far into substantive issues, but McCain-Feingold, uh, and whether McCain-Feingold, uh, in the name of political equality, uh, actually has been a principal cause, uh, as I tend to think it has been, uh, of the massive flow of money to outside groups in the political process, um, in my view, far more consequential than Citizens United. Uh, and if you look at the data on the rise of outside spending, uh, from, from McCain-Feingold to Citizens United, uh, the rate of increase of that outside spending uh, continued fairly similarly after Citizens United than before. Um, so that's, that's something I'm actually tr trying to do some work on to document more fully, uh, but I think that that's the case. Um, now the way to understand this new political realism, or Bruce's take on it, I think, is um, that it, it must be understood in context, in the context of our political moment. Uh, by which I mean, uh, it's not an argument that all populist reforms of the last 40 years have been misguided, and Bruce is very clear about that. Um, it's to say that in our moment, what we need is a pushback against this populist kind of logic of reform from the more pluralist direction that Bruce is trying to describe. Um, it's, again, not to endorse uh, returning concretely to some imagined moment in the past that we can't recapture uh, or to have any kind of nostalgia about that. It's to suggest that there is great danger we have come to recognize uh, from pursuing reforms along these directions when the full consequences of those reforms haven't been thought through very um, clearly. Now, the critique, I would say, in my mind, of Bruce's book uh, is illustrated perfectly by Rick Hazen's response to the book, um, which is, um, I think in his wisdom and in his admirable effort to be very kind of careful and precise and balanced and the like, um, I think that the thrust of the book um, can be easily lost uh, because I think that, uh, for example, Rick uh, is able to, has and is able to walk away from the book convinced that uh, Bruce is fundamentally a populist, egalitarian, pluralist reformer. Uh, and I think it's completely reasonable to read the book that way. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very plausible people like Rick Hazen will be able to walk away untouched by the message of the book. <laughs> uh, and I think, and I, think that's, I, I think that that is because Bruce doesn't embrace sort of directly the radicalism or the, the thrust of the kind of argument he's actually trying to push. Um, in my own uh, critique of what I call democratic romanticism, in order precisely to be more provocative uh, about the way we are trying to develop this critique, uh, I am, perhaps as a law professor, inclined to be much more aggressive about laying out the markers here and trying to identify exactly where the differences lie and the kinds of problems that we need to be much more self-aware of. Um, now, let me just concretely um, talk about vouchers for a second, since it's come up a couple of times. Um, so many of these populist reform ideas are ones I myself was supportive of at earlier stages uh, of time. And so when vouchers were first proposed for campaign finance reform in the mid-1990s, um, I think Rick's proposal, I always think of it as the first of these proposals, um, I was very sympathetic and have been for many years. Um, I think it's only become clear in more recent years as we started getting data. Oh, Ned also proposed it. That's right, I forgot. Ned Foley also proposed vouchers <laughs> very early on. And I don't know which of you were first, so I won't get into that. But um, So uh, as time has gone on, as data has been collected on small donor programs and campaign finance, uh, and we were on a panel yesterday, many of us, uh, in which Michael Barber reviewed some of his very, very important work in this area. 
Um, it's becoming more clear, though the issue is not yet settled, that small donor campaign financing tends to fuel political polarization. Small donors tend to give to more ideologically kind of clear, sharply identified, usually more polar candidates. Uh, and it's intuitively logical, once you think through the system, uh, to think that that might very well be the case, especially when we're not talking about local races, but national races. Um, so it may very well be that in the pursuit of political equality, with respect to something like vouchers, um, we will end up creating a more dysfunctional political system. There are various different ways of pursuing political equality in this area. For example, uh, the way European democracies do campaign finance, public financing primarily through the political parties, which is something I think would be a good direction of reform for us. So you can support political equality and still have uh, views about which forms of institutionalizing political equality are more likely to produce a better democratic system as a whole uh, without fixating on just one dimension of equality in the form of equal access to dollars to contribute. Um, one way of understanding Bruce's book, and I would say the evolution of my own views on some of these issues, uh, is through the terms that my now deceased colleague, Tony Jutt at NYU used. Uh, Tony, as you probably know, was one of the great historians uh, of uh, Europe. Uh, in a posthumous book, his wife published a collection of his essays uh, with the title, When the Facts Change. Uh, and as she says uh, in the uh, prologue to the book, um, Jutt, who changed his mind on various issues over his life, when confronted with some of these changes, said, um, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? <laughs> um, and I would say those are the kinds of questions about whether McCain-Feingold, for example, in the pursuit of a certain vision of political purity or political equality, uh, whether small donor campaign finance programs uh, uh, as we have learned more, uh, look different than they did in the mid-1990s when some of these proposals were first uh, put forward. So uh, just to conclude, as I've already said, I think that in Bruce's effort to be so careful and uh, as he's making the transition to coming out more fully uh, <laughs> with his neo-populist critique, um, I think that the lack of a sharper edge uh, and Bruce's unwillingness to grasp the nettle on various specific sorts of issues and tell us actually not what the range of considerations are, but how we ought to think about resolving particular issues um, can dilute the intellectual force and the message and the thrust uh, of this book, uh, which properly read uh, should not allow the Rick Hasens of the world uh, to walk away untouched. <laughs> we now hear a response from Bruce Kane of Stanford University. Well, first of all, I want to thank not only um, the four people who really did an excellent job, but all of you for getting up and coming. Uh, so I really appreciate that. Uh, however, I was ready to say that uh, I was going to interpret fact that I had no audience as being, I had no critics. <laughs> so you've given lie to that. <laughs> um, I'll make some general points. I, I'm not going to go point by point because, first of all, there wasn't really uh, anything that I violently object to. Uh, I do disagree with some of the things, but I think it's more that, as Rick said... Um, you have to say which Rick. Rick you. Oh, yeah, okay. Rick P. Um, I... I I think that what he sees as um, being overly careful was also uh, politically uh, a strategy. Because uh, one of the arguments I make in the book is that you cannot have a consistent political system in America. That right from the start, we mix these traditions. And uh, I noticed this when I got on various uh, county and state constitutional commissions. I realized everybody was trying to get a consistent system that had consistent principles, because that's what we do as rational human beings. But the reality is we disagree, 
And so uh, right from the start, we've had elements that have been nonpartisan, elements that have been quasi-pluralistic, and elements that have been populistic. And we have to learn to live with that. We can't have a consistently pluralist system. Even as political scientists, we would like it. You can't have it. And uh, so the book is, is diplomatically and politically constructed precisely because we need Rickest. Even if we say a pain in the ass with his, his misconceptions of ideas, you need Rick Hess, and he actually isn't quite as bad as he's been portrayed. But uh, <laughs> in his popular words, have never been spoken. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, uh, because, as I say, there's radical popu uh, populism and moderate populism, and I think Rick is moderate populist, and they need to be in our coalition uh, if we're going to do something. Okay, so that's point number one. Uh, point number two is that. Um, when I put forward these ideas, my ideas have progressed since then, okay, so the point of it was simply to say we can think differently about design if we get away, if we actually take what we know in political science, because I don't really think what I'm saying is novel. I think when we went to that meeting at Hewland two years ago, Rick P., and it was like uh, going to a religious uh, meeting or maybe uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or something, and realizing that we all had a common conception that we didn't realize that we had, which was a pluralist conception. We all had the same critique, but nobody was really saying it. Now, I was in the process of writing a book about it, so it was clearer to me, but I think it was coming aware to everybody that really in political science, we, have, we would contest many of the premises that the reform community had, but we weren't doing anything about it. We were just studying the reforms and what their impact was, but we weren't contesting it at the start. And that has to do with two problems in political science. One is the division between empirical and normative that is so severe. Uh, and then add to that the third one, which is the unwillingness to engage in constructive suggestions and institutional design. We, we, we talk the talk of institutional design, but in reality we don't put our bodies on the line. We don't. And so my suggestions are not some complete agenda of what should be implemented because some of them are, you know, are good and some of them are bad and some of them need work. In fact, I would argue that any idea has to be out there and has to be modified. So let's do the voucher thing because we're talking about vouchers. Uh, first of all, vouchers does not equal equality. Um, they're separate notions, and vouchers can be designed in a way that's not equal or it can be designed in a way that's equal. Secondly, vouchers are not necessarily individual and populistic. They can be designed in such a way that you incentivize people to aggregate into parties or interest groups, right? So you can give larger vouchers for people who give to an organization. Um, so the voucher doesn't have to go to a candidate. Um, the problem of lack of participation, uh, which I think is a and Rick's abs, uh, Rick P. is absolutely right, that you cannot... Uh, you cannot assume that the average citizen will even bother to designate a voucher in a given place. But then you have a default. And the default is if you don't do anything, it goes into a pot which is for nonpartisan voter mobilization to enhance its turnout. Okay? Now, that may, not be an, uh, that may be an idea that needs refinement. But again, my point is we need to start thinking more creatively. We need to put our bodies on the line. And we need to remember Kingdon's work on public policy which has an application to, to institutions. So what am I talking about? He talks about how ideas get formulated decades before they ever get adopted, and they wait for their moment, their propitious moment. Then that's the answer, really, Francis. I mean, the answer is not to say, oh, well, screw this, we can't do anything. <laughs> okay? The answer is, yeah, we throw out these ideas. Some of them have, got a, you know, have no chance of ever being adopted, but some of them, you don't know what the circumstances are. Okay, you don't know what the circumstances are, and they might get adopted. And let's remember that really what you want to do is move a lot of this down. And uh, Anthony, I think, was talking about this yesterday. We really need to move this down to the state level and do the experiments at the state and local level. And this is the hardest thing, the most frustrating thing with Hewlett, because they have done exactly what Francis would recommend they not do, but in her self-interest, because she's a congressional scholar, she can't say it too much because all her friends will get mad at her. But the reality is the worst place to start is the Congress. The worst place to start is at the national agenda. And so the book was purposely written to bring in the lessons from local government and from California, where 
We believe in experimentation every year. <laughs> you know, the joke I made for many years was, as a citizen, I voted against almost all these ideas, but as a political scientist, I said, yes! You are making my career. You are like a patient that opens up wounds on the body so I can study what your organs are. I mean, thank you, thank you. There aren't many institutions that really do self-inflicted wounds so that you can study it. <laughs> but California does that. So... Um, you know, so let me just go down the list. I mean, I think uh, there is, uh, I do throw out something because I think there are populist elements that we have to accept that are there. And so we need to figure out, say, with initiative reform, what part of that works, what part of it doesn't. I don't like the popular initiative, uh, certainly as constructed in California where it's user-friendly. And I do think that allowing the popular initiative for fiscal measures is absolutely insane, given all that we know in political science about how little people know about public budgeting. It's absolutely insane. And it just opens up the door to manipulation. On the other hand, I'm open to the idea that because state legislatures uh, sometimes get captured by their own self-interest, that there has to be something that at a supermajority level, not a simple majority, but a supermajority level, if people say, no, you know what, we're going to change the rules, then fine. But we don't have that. We don't have a supermajority rule for important changes to the Constitution of California, so it gets gained. Okay? So again, uh, you know, it's not about consistency, it's about coherence. It's not about first best strategies, it's about second best strategies. Okay? And it is initially not about feasibility. It's the first thing is to say, okay, what would you like? How would you design it? What are the imagined? And then in the second stage, it's about feasibility, okay? And then uh, altering it in, uh, in ways that you think would be compatible. And I think there are two stages to this. I think there is the track of reforms that come through the legislature, and some reforms do come through the legislature. Some of really important policy reforms in California have come through a legislature you never would have thought, like AB 32. You know, you would have thought that... Fossil fuel industries would have stopped that. And then they tried to stop it through the initiative process, and they weren't able to do that either. So, I mean, I think realism can't be total pessimism and fatalism. Or, or fatalism is really the word. Realism can't be fatalism. Realism has to be, okay, this is hard. This is difficult. This has to be designed to make sure that the interests at the higher level, at the representative level, at the elite level, that we can find a coalition that puts that together. We have to think about what the propitious moment will be so that because timing in politics is very important. And you have to think that some of these reforms are better done through uh, the population, but it's not easy, okay, because they're not as interested in process. They're more interested in outcome. Um, so uh, with Francis, I mean, I've sort of addressed uh, this feasibility thing, and, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think exactly... Um, the way Francis thinks about reform is the way I think about reform, okay? But I don't think that should stop us from saying, okay, what if we could get together, get a coalition together, what would it look like and what would it do? Because there are these phenomena, not only, there's a fouling the nest phenomena. Gary Cox did this in his book, on his first book ever, which was on why the British Parliament, um, you know, adopted... Uh, you know, change the agenda rules to get away from uh, basically a personal member bills to uh, essentially a collective party proposal. And it was a fouling the nest argument. To basically, if things get so bad, you have to do something about it. So that's one of many mechanisms that you look for, for in terms of opportunity moments, and that's probably what's at some point going to go through a Congress. Think of how much Congress has changed just in Bruce's lifetime. Now, Frances is young, so she doesn't change much in her lifetime. But in my lifetime, I've gone from the world of Fenno, which was a post-war world. So imagine another unification, possibly around what's going on in terrorism or whatever, that suddenly puts people on, I mean, on the same page. And if you don't think that can happen, think about what happened after Bush in the Iraq War. I mean, for me, that was amazing, because all of my you know, my contemporaries that went through the Vietnam period that were totally anti-military, anti-patriotism, switched on a dime, switched on a dime uh, in the invasion of Afghanistan, okay? Now, they came back after Iraq, but there was still a lot of 
patriotism uh, that pushed some people to support the war in Iraq too. But that was a huge change for a generation that had grown up opposed to the Vietnam War and very opposed to the military, opposed to the CIA. You know, we would have, I mean, the transformation for those of us who have lived through it is just amazing. You know, to have, when I was at UCDC, we brought the guy that was in charge of the assassinations to, to speak to the UCDC crowd, and he was mobbed like a celebrity. Okay? Mobbed like a celebrity. So, for me, I think political conditions are unimaginable. They can change. We can't really be sure. And that will change how we think about it. And what happened to Congress was a result of things that were outside the control of Congress. It was uh, the transformation of the South. Let's say Nelson Polsby's air conditioning theory, but whatever else drove, uh, you know, demographically that. So I think we have to be very careful about saying that the world we see right now, right now is a permanent one. It may last much longer than we think, as it did in the 19th century, but it may it may change. Okay? Um, and you know, Ray, I'm, I think Ray's got a very good point that I probably should have done more about emotion, uh, and I probably should have looked more at the literature of that. I'm not sure it changes anything about what I propose or why I worry about it, but I could be wrong about that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wish I had thought about that a little bit more. Um, I think, though, you're, you're misreading the rationalism in me um, because uh, my point about voter knowledge and capacity is, yes, you do make an effort to make it better, and this is a conversation that Ned and I have been having for a couple years and will probably continue this year, which is um, I'm very struck when I went back. I wrote an article about Madisonian constitutional design with a philosopher named Will Jones way early in my career. And it forced us to really read Madison very clearly about uh, the rationality, because a lot of rational choices were adopting Madison as the, the forerunner of rational choice theory. And uh, it didn't strike Will or me that that was quite right, because in reality, Madison, while he believes in incentives, actually believed that culture mattered. And it's a little bit like the argument about why when it's 2 o'clock in the morning and there's no cameras, which there are here in, Cal uh, in California, but if there's no cameras at the intersection, why does anybody stop, right? If it can't be enforced, then the odds. And the reality is that the more you can get people to culturally buy into the norms of the system, the less the enforcement mechanisms have to work hard. So um, I think the point about it is the more we can educate people, we take a little bit of the burden off the Madisonian institutions. And so that's really where Ned and I are coming from, that that's the importance of civic education. And I think it has an important implication for the way we teach. Um, you know, I think we have to think much more seriously about teaching people how to operate in, this, in the card culture, maybe through gaming or whatever, you know, uh, simulations that make the average citizen aware of how the system can be worked to empower them rather than giving them dry textbooks, even if it's written by us. Um, so um, I, I, I've been talking to some of the Stanford kids about maybe doing something like that, and I think we should think about that. Um, and so let's see, that, uh, that leaves Rick. I mean, it is uh, one of the sad things that's happened, really tragic things that's happened uh, to the election law field is that Rick and I increasingly agree with each other. <laughs> and so the entertainment... Wait, which Rick are you talking about now? Yeah. Me? Me, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, Rick P. and I increasingly agree with us. And so uh, Rick Pildes and I were a source of entertainment for lots of people because we disagreed early on. Unfortunately, now we're converging in the same place. Um, and, he's, and the critique, by the way, that I, I, I don't make the argument as strongly as I can. This is actually uh, goes back to Dan Lowenstein and some of the early work that I did. He used to say the same thing. And a part of that is just the different traditions that we come out of. Um, you know, lawyers uh, really are good at making a case. And, there's, and I actually think that the coalition, what we really need to do is make it a movement of sorts, an intellectual movement. And, uh, and in that movement, there are people that play different roles and bring to it different skills. And I don't claim to be as good at advocacy as almost all the people I know in the election law field who have been trained in that and have actually argued before the courts. I've learned a lot from them, and I've gotten better at it, but that's not uh, kind of the way we're trained in political science. And also, I have this political agenda that I really want to build a coalition within uh, the reform world, so I'm not interested in kicking too hard 
uh, because I think we need to have them inside the tent if we're going to do anything for all the reasons that Francis said. Um, but other than that, uh, unfortunately, uh, Rick really truly understands what I was doing and uh, didn't really uh, take issue with me in any serious way. So, um, How about your age? Uh, no, that's even true. <laughs> so, you know, so I will uh, um, I will leave it at that, and um, I don't know whether uh, you, you were going to say something or what. Yeah, uh, no, well, I'm, there are many things I'm tempted to say, but there are people who showed up okay. at 8 o'clock. Yeah. So, I, so I wanted to reward that, and, and I know a lot of people here do have a lot to say. So why don't we yeah, open we'll it up that. now for, uh, for, for audience comments that could engage Bruce and the panel as well. The ELB podcast is produced with the support of the University of California at Irvine, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music for the ELB podcast is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under a Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan. Goodbye. Thank you.